This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I'm joined by a storyteller that uses his writing, directing, and editing talents to tell global stories that have universal appeal. He has edited big-budget action features and heartfelt comedies, and he recently directed the comedy martial arts movie, Paper Tigers. He tells us the impact that his mentor, master action director Corey Yoon, had on him as a kid. He shares Brad Bird's advice that the job of a storyteller is telling campfire stories as big as the world, and together, we take a shot at the first kung fu fight on a podcast. Stay tuned for my dialogue with a man of action, triple threat, Bao Tran. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hello, Pat. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to have you. I saw your movie. Every time I see an action picture of any kind, I can't do any of it. There's that visceral sense that if I were in shape, I could probably do some of it. You have a character in yours that's not totally in shape, so I even related more to that <laughs> character thinking, oh, I don't have to be fully in shape. That's great to hear. I hear you have a mean backhand, so if, if you have the, <laughs> the willpower and the mind to set to it, you can, you can do it, make it happen. Yeah, for those who don't know what I was uh, referencing, <laughs> in Paper Tigers, there's three middle-aged guys that are a bit out of shape and they're avenging the death of their master. You wrote this film. How did you come about the story? Yeah, I mean, I wrote this film in about 2010. It took about 10 years to finish the film in 2021. So it's been a long journey. But in terms of writing and, and coming up with the idea, I was kind of at a point in my life where I was a little bit burned out from the film industry, if you will. I started making movies as a kid, very young, early on. The whole backyard VHS uh, camcorder learning filmmaking with two VHS decks, basically linear editing, pause, record, pause, record. And that's how I came up. And I just started falling in love with filmmaking, or I guess it wasn't film, but who cares? It's called that now. <laughs> but visual storytelling, if you will. And I just fell in love with that. Projects got bigger and bigger, and we started doing shorts. And I got into uh, working on uh, other friends and people's uh, features. And then this was meant to be my first feature film. But at that time, you know, I was feeling a little burnt out from just the business side of show business. It's almost like it, this wasn't what I signed up for. And maybe I was a little bit too doe-eyed about how things were going to be in this industry. But I kind of took all those emotions, kind of put it into what I was feeling into the story. So the story is about these three guys who, like you mentioned, are out of shape, but uh, eventually have to kind of rediscover their roots, which is martial arts. And kind of like that was their useful passion and whether it has meaning for them now and, and, and for their future. So kind of the same sense that by metaphor, for me, martial arts and film was my two useful passions. And so I just wanted to be able to kind of explore those feelings that I was having in a fun movie. So, uh, you know, essentially this is all kind of like working from that idea and that, that theme first 
and then trying to figure out what that would look like in a movie. I can tell you, is it's transferable. So while you use martial arts to tell this story, it is clearly something about regaining a part of your past, grabbing onto something that that gave you passion and purpose, and then reigniting that. And I see that happen with musicians and songwriters. And so I thought that was really more universal. I read something that there was a little bit of a struggle on raising the money where Within the Asian community, you were getting a little bit of backlash about, are you doing another martial arts movie? How's that going to make us look as an Asian-American community? And from the industry, they were reading the script and saying, this is a great script. Can we make this three white guys that speak English? How did you go about raising those funds to make this project come to life? Writing the film, that was one thing, and trying to get it working as a screenplay, that obviously is its own challenge. But then actually trying to raise the money and trying to get it made uh, is another. And the bulk of that time in that 10 years that I mentioned, it was fundraising. We had gone out to Hollywood or the L.A. film studios and all the people that were had certain finances or were, were able to kind of finance this in the space because we were basically it's my first feature as a director. So I kind of knew in terms of what I was able to even ask for in terms of funding. So, you know, somewhere under $5 million in that range. And we went out and we had a lot of interest. And like you said, there was a there was some caveats that came with the interest is that they wanted to make it bankable with white stars. We have a long history in Hollywood of, of whitewashing and race bending, as you call it, from Breakfast at Tiffany's all the way up to just recently Ghost in the Shell or Aloha State. All these things are a long and well-trodden road by Hollywood. They, they seem to do it really well. They have a good day, so they ask it without any compunction whatsoever. These are very straight-faced demands or asks that they have to, to get involved with the project. And mind you, this was before Crazy Rich Asians and Black Panthers, so the conversation was hopefully a little bit better now. But before then, that was much more open-faced about making these asks and demands about the project. So we said thanks, but no thanks. And so we went onward and, and we went to Kickstarter and crowdfunding and, and private equity and raising the money for the film. Even in the private community, which we sought out Asian Americans specifically who are of a certain financial standing or well-off in order to be able to fund the film, we did get some pushback as well because they seem to be a little bit more interested in finding roles or supporting Asian Americans in entertainment, yes, but supporting Asian Americans in roles that were a little less well-trodden. Martial arts and Asian Americans or Asians is kind of a, a long history, but it hasn't been a history that has been where we've been in the driver's seat and portraying our characters and our people in, the, in a correct way. It's often been stereotypes or basically demonized by this broader white Hollywood culture of what martial arts is. So that's kind of a whole bag of worms right there to unpack. But basically, they wanted to move the ball forward, but in different ways. And so it was, yeah, kind of a rock and hard place because we were like, well, we like kung fu movies. Like, there wasn't really much to apologize for in terms of wanting to tell the story that we wanted to tell. At the end of the day, that's really what we want. We're not trying to, I guess, paint by numbers, which can also mean paint by numbers by along race lines and have just Asian American roles. But we wanted to have stuff that we felt that was truthful to our experience and something that, like I grew up, you know, like I said, with these type of experience of, of growing up with martial arts with a multicultural crowd. The cast should reflect that. I think it was just a sense of being able to find ourselves uh, in between all this kind of noise, to be honest, and calling it for what it is, just between all this noise and being able to kind of like be truthful to, to thyself and making the movie that we wanted to make. I'm glad that you did. I love that it was a family film and it did reflect everyday life you mentioned noise. I want to ask you about a different kind of noise because I think of action films and particularly kung fu films that you have got to use sound effects to build out this story map. 
for body sounds, for punches, for kicks. What do you use for that? Are they kicking cantaloupes in the sound studio? Where does that sound come from? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. All credit really goes to our, our sound mixer, Kirby Jenna, who he basically is the maestro of all the sound design that you hear with the sound, the hitting and, and whatnot. Because there's cantaloupe hitting. I think there's usually a library that they usually work from that involves actually hitting practical items and, and picking up those sounds, but also layering and EQing and just massaging the sound so it always sounds a little bit different. Maybe if you've seen movies that are with less resources or maybe of, of a lower budget, you know, the sounds kind of repeat and you feel, you almost heard like, didn't I hear that, you know, two seconds ago? So there's a certain type of monotony when you watch all these action stuff. Thankfully for Kirby and his team, they wanted to make sure every hit, every punch, every kick sounded a little bit different and landed literally differently. And that adds to the whole texture of that sound design. It makes it feel real. I also know that you have a great deal of experience editing action. This was a very, very action-packed movie, considering there were so many sequences, and they were all quite different, and they were all quite intricate. It felt like these people really had to work this thing out. Do you have a fight coordinator, or is this something that you visualize yourself? I did have an action team, what we call our action director, even though the guild, the DGA, poo-poo's me saying that, but I'll say it. We kind of follow the Asian model of production where you essentially have an action team or action director that kind of manages exactly those sequences from down from the shot design to the editing to the staging and so on. Basically, it's first unit kind of clear set for action unit to come in and, and sometimes they'll shoot it simultaneously in a lot of Hong Kong films. That's how they're able to make so many films in such a short amount of time. So there is a practical element to that. So we kind of took a note from that playbook. But for us in America, we had grown up watching Hong Kong movies and grown up watching action films of that certain style. And when you watch it, there's a certain design that's very specific. It's not just kind of a, a mishmash of images. Like every image creates something or an emotion and cuts into the next one. It's very intentional. And so that's something that we appreciate it. And obviously it's it's legendary. Hong Kong films are, Hong Kong action films are bar none uh, for, for action filmmaking. So we definitely found an inspiration from that growing up. So my team and my, my actually also cast member, Ken Kidgo as our action director. So I had worked with him for many projects before that. And so this one was a natural step to have this be involved for the action design for this. Again, this kind of threw the crew for a bit of a loop <laughs> sometimes because they're not quite used to this type of filmmaking method. But for me, jogging back, you know, I kind of grew up, again, like doing things by myself and learning, writing, directing, editing all together as a piece and not really this division of labor. And also Robert Rodriguez, Rebel Without a Crew, was hugely influential for me, which was the general mantra was, you know, pick up the camera and shoot it. And so we kind of run roughshod <laughs> a bit with the crew because, you know, they kind of, you know, have their little divisions and it's, it's good. It works, but I like to shake things up and keep things a little, keeping them, people on their toes. So our action director, Ken Kidgoy, definitely kind of worked with the actors and staged the shots. Definitely I'm there watching, giving notes and whatnot. But there is a deferral to Ken on the day as he kind of runs the set for the action scenes. And now that you have made your feature film debut, what are you no longer afraid of? <laughs> what am I no longer afraid of? That's a funny... Th I guess I'm no longer afraid of having to tell people that I can make a feature without having showing them a feature. It's like crossing that barrier. I don't think filmmaking gets any easier. It gets harder, to be honest. But there tends to be that mental barrier you can tell when you talk to people if you haven't made that feature yet but you keep talking about it it's like everyone's kind of like okay can you do it or not so I, I maybe that's the, the 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 piece that goes away so why do you think that it's more challenging the further you get into it 
I think the bar set higher, at least for me personally, just wanting to do better. They asked Billy Wilder, what's your favorite movie? And he said, it's the next one, right? So I always appreciated that idea. It's always the next one, you know, the next Super Bowl. It's not about the one you just won. So it's about going for that process and keep following down that. And it gets harder because, yeah, all eyes are on you. I think that's the other thing. Your previous projects have some type of notoriety and attention, and now all eyes are on you for the next one. So the pressure is definitely up. And even craft-wise, it's just like you just want to do better and, and stick the landing a little bit tighter and right on the bullseye and be, just be a little bit better on that. And then that's what makes it a lot harder as you progress down. So hopefully uh, that's the past, but hopefully by the end of it, we'll get one of them right. <laughs> I think in the music business, it's our second album syndrome. You have a hit album and then you wonder oh my gosh is this song good enough to be on my next album is the album good enough to compete with the first album but i wonder if you have a little bit of an advantage as a director having been a editor so much prior in that you probably get a sense when you're directing when you've got it when you know there's a transition that you the edit is going to be that you could communicate to your editor if you're working with somebody or whether you're editing yourself, you probably don't have to shoot as much footage as other directors. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for others, but I think for exactly what you're saying, going on set, I do have a sense of what we would need. And if the pieces are missing, if we're leaving something on the floor and we still need to pick it up or, or go and get, maybe I work a little bit more from the operation of fear or anxiety. It's like, I always think, am I missing something? I know we're getting it, but am I missing something? That's kind of like where I kind of like weave back and forth. If I know I got it, we can definitely move on. There's not much more flogging that you really need to do. <laughs> if you have it, just keep moving on and, and get to the next ones. Because, uh, yeah, I think that's a sense of at least knowing the footage, maybe because I've been there. I've been there looking at and screaming at footage. Like, where is this shot? How come I don't have this shot? And so I never want to find myself in this situation again, right? And so you're always kind of like, uh, those are kind of the life lessons that you learn and pick up in doing that. So yeah, I think that certainly helps. I guess what I was talking about just making it harder is just, it's more that mental game. Craft-wise and, and technique and yeah, you get better and you have more experience, but also a mental game of dealing with the pressure and dealing with the expectation, basically casting it aside, really. Because sorry to use this football analogy again, the best quarterbacks are the ones who just kind of like slough off the last play, interception or whatever. Like the best quarterbacks are just about the next play. Maybe that's the type of ignorance that... <laughs> I can uh, strive to acquire. <laughs> it's fair to say in most sports, that's the situation. If you hit a bad golf ball and you worry about it, you're never going to get any closer to the hole. Yeah. Don't get beaten by the last play, right? That's, that's the saying. Yeah. So now you're an experienced editor and you directed this, but you didn't do the final edit. You had an editor or did you do some editing and someone else? Because I saw... Chris Christensen's name on the editing, and he's somebody that I had met before, so I was excited to see that he was working with you. Shout out to Chris Christensen, uh, the editor. Yes, he was the editor. Uh, also, Ken Kitagawa, having done design the action sequence, he also did a pass to assemble the fight scenes, and we all kind of like kind of came together. It and also it was a bit of a time crunch, so it was a bit of a all hands on deck to try to cut and assemble scenes together. But Chris had the final kind of like touches for sure as a whole movie since he is kind of the custodian of the entire film so it certainly falls to his feet to do and maybe in the sense that because I had edited for other directors that I just knew how important that role was being that kind of like sounding board but also the cruel cruel mistress who just you know cuts the, you know everything to pieces because you don't need it and you're just knowing you know exactly what you need for the movie and not for what that crane shot is or what you know the what you what effort you had on the day you know they don't care and there's something beautiful in that brutality that an editor brings to the table and so I, I knew that and even for myself knowing that I'm an editor but you're still in it and you're still 
eyeballs deep in, in actually making the film during production. So it's good to have uh, an editor just kind of come in uh, not having to deal with all that drama and just knowing exactly what is on screen or what footage was actually in the can and work from that. And so I always kind of appreciated that and I wanted to create that space for myself because to be honest, you know, in budget conversations, that was one of the first roles to be on the chopping blocks. They'd be like, Bow, well, you know how to edit. Can't you just edit? And why can't we just maybe save money on the editor? Thank God to my producers. My producers held firm and supported me in, in my ask for having a, an editor to work with us on this. It's so important. I find that anytime you look at a budget and you cut something, like when we just talked about, do I have that shot? Sometimes I say, what do we need a reaction shot for? We're not going to use it. It's like, no, we need choices. We actually may have to tell this story differently. And I'll tell you, once you don't shoot something or you skip a location, you can't ever get it. You can't ever go back and get that part of the jigsaw puzzle to tell the story. So it is it is often very, very problematic when somebody who doesn't know storytelling is making the cuts, is deciding where we financially, why do you need extras? Can't we just put cutouts <laughs> in the stadium? It's like, well, they yeah. have to stand up. They have to cheer. No, we can't do that. And yet those questions get asked all the time. I think the question is, uh, what's more interesting about like having to defend your choices in front of money people, or it's more about like saying what it can't be. It's an interesting part of that creative side that I, I guess I never thought of it that way, where it's almost like you have to defend why it shouldn't be that way versus what it is. What it is is kind of you leave it on the day until you have the cast and your department heads to kind of bring their genius to it. But for all those money meetings, those scheduling meetings, well, can you do it in seven days? Can you do it in without this role? Can you do it without the editor? Sometimes you have to push back against those things without really being able to fully articulate, you know, what exactly that does to the movie, right? Or does to the whole piece. But yet you have to fight for those. I remember one time an NBC executive, when I was writing on a sitcom, said, this joke isn't funny, you should cut it. <laughs> in a table read or something. And I was really young and I had a little bit more brass balls at the time, but I said, no, I believe that it's funny. And he goes out loud to everybody. He said, is this not funny or is this just me? And I said, I think it's just you, which was <laughs> completely inappropriate. But here's what it led to. I said, I'll tell you what, because if it's not funny, I'll be the first to cut it. I don't want a non-funny joke here. But I said, I'll bet you $20 that this gets a laugh at the studio audience and he said, oh, I'll take that bet. And he put his $20 up and I put $20 up. And when we left, my partner said to me, what are you doing? I said, now we get to see it because he's got money on it. So he's going to let us shoot it. And once it's on film, if it's funny, we keep it. If it's not, we get rid of it. And it only cost me 20 bucks. It was a little bit of a con game, but we were in danger of losing it too early. He didn't pay attention to the rest of the show. He just waited till he came back and said, did it get a laugh? Did it get a laugh? It did get a laugh. And there, it you stayed go. In. there you go. There you go. He was like, I got your 20 bucks. And I thought to myself, yeah, I got my joke where I want it. Exactly. And he didn't really pay attention to all the other bad jokes in that episode. But <laughs> that's a little inside trick. Hey, you had a mentor. I was reading uh, Master Action Director Corey Yoon uh, was your mentor. Yeah. Can you tell me what an impact that had on you? Yeah, just a bit of biography. Corey Yoon is just one of the master Hong Kong film directors in that legendary realm of Yen Wuping, Jackie Chan, Samo Hong. He grew up with Jackie Chan and Samo in this opera school, which is essentially kind of a martial arts circus. You can check out Jackie Chan's biography. It's it's insane. This is basically vaudeville, right? 
a really tough childhood, really hard fought growing up and then going into the film industry because it, there wasn't much experience outside of learning circusing. You know, there's not much. So you go into a film and then he became a director through that path, going through stunts and, and action and become an action director and a, and a film director. And he came through it, I guess, how would you say survival means? Because again, he went to this circus or this kind of like performing academy basically because they were poor. And it's kind of like an indentured servitude that they kind of go into this thing. And I say this because he had a real streak of practicality and that in a way where it just always brought me back to my back to my feet, back to the ground, because I would be like, oh, movies, art. Oh, so great. And he's like, yeah, if I had education or I could do something else, I would totally do it. I, would, I only do it in film because, you know, life put me here <laughs> in a little way. Just that outlook on movies and making movies made it really practical just made it a lot more sensible to kind of like go through so thinking back I feel like that was the biggest influence but obviously with the action filmmaking I was a family friend so I started crossing paths like in my teen years very early when like I said when I was making these backyard videos he would sit there and watch this and humor me and watch my stupid videos and, and give me notes and tell me what to look out for what to do what to you know and so on and just that type of just time that was spent was really treasured because just being so young and finding your sea legs and trying to figure out what movie making is and trying to figure it all out and to have, you know, a master who's making movies basically for the world, it set me on that. And in a lot of ways, this was pre-YouTube and pre-anything. So if I was just making those things, it might have just been that I would show it to my family or friends and just like call it a day. But he really made me start thinking about, well, what is the world going to think when they see your backyard video? I was like, what? (laughs) So it's just like taking the top off, the lid off, and thinking about you're making a movie for the world. You're telling a story for the world. That really kind of set me on this broader vision of how powerful, number one, storytelling is. But number two is just who exactly are we trying to cater to, the type of storytelling, and make it open up to that. And flash forward, you know, I heard Brad Bird talk about filmmaking, and he was saying, our job as storytellers is telling campfire stories. And the campfire is as big as the world. So I heard him say that, and it just kind of came full circle, kind of connected all the things, you know, those little breadcrumbs along the way for me to kind of understand, like, what was I actually looking for? And then when Brad kind of put that into those words, like, it just clicked and made sense for me as far as the type of movies that I wanted to tell, I guess the role I have as a filmmaker, and I guess you could say calling, if you will, and what I feel like I'm on this planet to do is, is exactly that. That's kind of the whole path of mentorship that I... I'm just hugely appreciative for. Well, I think you've just given a gift to our listeners too, because that a whole notion that the story is global, that it's possible to tell a story, especially now with all of the ways that you can distribute something that can catch fire. And it can be as small as a tweet or a short film or a feature film and all eyes are on you. So tell that story in the best way you can be sure that you're getting everything out there in the most authentic way and there's no point in thinking small and and that's not meant from an ego standpoint it's just it is possible you were given permission by somebody who you knew had done it who had made it in some way but right now you're passing that baton on to everyone else in a simple phrase so i'm glad that brad bird who i by the way loved his iron giant movie I think that was one of the ones that caught me by surprise, an animated children's movie, which wasn't really a children's movie at all. And I thought, oh, this is artful storytelling. And I I guess you and I should talk about story because we share a friend that is a storyteller. 
Brian McDonald, who has been with us on this podcast in the past. And Brian said that you and he met and had some story discussions where you challenged each other. And at the end of that, and he thought this was an amazing thing. You showed a lot of vulnerability. At the end of that, you decided you were going to go take his story class just to see his angle on it. Can you tell me how that came about for you? Yeah. I guess I don't remember the martial arts duel part of it, but I do remember. <laughs> I inflated it a little yeah, bit. But yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. You maybe had some contrasting views on story. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm certain. I'm certainly we. Well, we still have some conversations to this day about certain things. Brian is another huge influence, another form of mentor. Brian opened my eyes in terms of he has this concept of invisible ink and understanding the story that's happening below the story or what's kind of happening underneath the words or and the actions or the scenes. So that really kind of set me on that way of understanding it's really about the theme and the underlying arc of these characters. When I met Brian, we met through a mutual friend. I think he was actually on a film set of all places. <laughs> we just started rapping on a few things. And, you know, I, Brian, as you know, has very, very strong ideas about certain things. And so I was like maybe poking the bear a bit and trying to see <laughs> what that would be. <laughs> and uh, maybe, you know, just trying to see. I'm, and I'm certainly an inquisitive person. I, I, I like learning and, and seeing what things. But he had such a specific, clear point of view. And it felt like he was coming from a place of truth. And I think... If you meet a lot of folks that are doing film teaching and whatnot, you can kind of suss out the kind of more, how would you say, the more BS of it. And you kind of can kind of sense when people are just putting out some hot air or when they're actually, you know, coming from a stance of either experience with Corey or a place of truth from like Brian that comes from this years and years of study, like serious study of story. And so you can kind of touch on it or you can kind of, once you're up against it, you can kind of feel that, yeah, there's something to it. So it did intrigue me to take his class and to continue uh, talking to him and seeing how he saw the world and how he saw movies, and which is really interesting because it was just such a, again, it's such a, number one, a little bit of a old school because uh, I made him maybe, you know, mid-2000s. So it was a little bit like old-fashioned, if you will, you know, when you kind of talk to him and he's talking about three-act structures and so on. So it's it was always kind of like a little like, okay, okay, old man. Like, he <laughs> 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 wasn't that old. But it was just kind of like you have that sense. But then it was like, yeah, he's right. When you actually sit by yourself and looking at these stories, and he had a whole list of movies to said, hey, just watch this. Don't take my word for it. You know, it's like reading Rainbow. Don't take my word for it. Watch it and see if you're seeing what I'm seeing. And you're sitting there watching, and you're seeing the, these arcs and these transformations happen underneath, again, the scenes and the stories and the, the movies, all genres that were on his list. And you actually see the arcs and the movements of these characters you're like damned if i do like it's there and if you are willing to look then it's there and you start to kind of dig deeper and it's not a subjective it's not a a rorschach type of thing when you actually start to see those little like you said those little footprints you you can start to make out a structure to a story a structure to a joke or a structure to to any way that we tell stories or talk to each other even and it's very folksy in that sense and it's very real and that's what really kind of unlocked it because I felt like a lot of either screenwriting gurus or filmmaking teachers, it almost felt a little too academic for me. And there was something I brought up Brian and the cases that he would bring up and the examples. It just felt like, yeah, it just makes sense. He creates a very accessible manifesto in the Invisible Ink book where you read it and it's like somebody's just chatting with you about it. Yeah. And then his examples are things like, oh, I've seen the movie Tootsie. Oh, I've seen... Chinatown, whatever it is, you go, oh, I can immediately implement that. And I also think he's a 
tremendously generous teacher in that he feels like if he creates better storytellers, we're going to have more better stories and that's going to make the world a better place. So why would somebody guide you the wrong way, send you down a back alley? Absolutely. And the compliment I will pay you is that he thought that you were one of the best students uh, that he ever had because your application to it and your willingness to take the study, even though you had already been down the road of filmmaking, was a, a very mature choice. So take that compliment to the bank if you want. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I will take it to the bank and cash it for all it's worth. I appreciate that. That's very <laughs> nice to, to hear. It's a tricky thing because it's almost like, you know, I can easily see myself going, mm, well, that's stupid, or just kind of dismiss what he was saying and, and maybe go my merry way and kind of continue doing the things that I was doing and you know people can easily make that choice and I don't know it's no real judgment on uh, how people kind of react to it but it just made sense to me and it, and it felt like it gave me a tool to be able to work through because it almost felt like there was a bit of a flailing in the dark it's like yeah let's come up with ideas and it's a little more spitballing and yeah but how do we at this point now you have a ton of ideas well how do you figure out what's going to work so what tools or what process are you going to have to winnow it down when you have an armature and a structure that you're building within, then it's sort of like a foundation for a house where you go, oh, here's, we're going to put the billiard room, as if people said that. The candlestick in the parlor room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm building the house for Clue. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that when you're in that whole brainstorming, let's all have ideas, you're building a foundation that is big and sprawling. And that also then means when you build the house on it, you got to build a roof to match and everything just gets out of control. But when you have some structure and whether it's Brian or someone else where you get real story clarity from, it doesn't matter the length of your movie. You still need to have that for a short film. You need to have that for a 60 second commercial. You have to know what the character wants. What is their goal? What are the obstacles? All of those things. And when you start to understand, oh, these pieces make sense, then it does give you a little more confidence when you walk into it that you can not just defend your film, but you can say, no, there's a reason for it. That's what motivates this. Yeah, that's huge. There's a bit of confusion over, it can't be that easy. Well, it's not easy. It is simple, but it's not easy. And yeah, the concept is there for you to take, but you know, like you're saying, to actually fill out the room, fill out the house, that's not easy work at all. And right. that's very difficult, and that's the craft of it. I'm not anywhere on any mountaintop. You know, Chris and I would have these conversations during making the film, and it's always a self-check of, like, it can't be that simple. And yet it is, and you kind of let it ride, and you let the scene go, or you let whatever beat happen. You trust it. But even, you know, I'll still go, like, there's got to be a little bit more, no? It's like, it's clean, it checks out, there's nothing more to do to it, so let's let it ride. So I think it, it's a whole process that even all of us, you know, have to do in our own study as we're making these films. It's a whole process of honesty. And simplicity being complex is compressed even more when you're dealing in short films. And I saw a list, you have <laughs> short films, 345, Carmen's Virtue, Bookie, Black Coffee, The Challenger. These are all short films that you cut your teeth on. So tell me what the secret is in terms of making a short film. As an independent filmmaker, there's a lot of people out there trying to make a short film. But what's your mantra for that? The secret is don't have a lot of money and you work with what you got. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny thing looking back because I started making shorts kind of in that 2000s era. And during that time, it was very in vogue to throw a lot of money at these short films. It's kind of like music videos where these were like feature film budgets being spent on music videos. And even shorts were 
you know, a lot of money that was being thrown around and spent on it. But I, I didn't have that much money, so I was trying to make my way in that. But yeah, just making shorts in a lot of ways, to me, it's harder than a feature. Feature is almost like a marathon. Obviously, it's like it's just challenging because you have to kind of slog through and have the endurance to last that many days to, and, and just be on the ball mentally. But craft-wise, a short is very difficult to do and especially to keep a captive audience. The audience, when they know that it's a short, they're a little bit more on the ball of like picking on things and tearing something apart. Whereas if the audience knows it's going to sit for another nine, a 90-minute movie, they kind of let things ride and they're kind of like, oh, that was weird. And they just kind of like go on to the next scene. So it's a little bit less critical, if you will. But for a short, man, the, the knives are out <laughs> for people. And people just, you know, will turn off the short or their attention span is in much more high demand for some reason. So shorts are very, very difficult to make. And so for me, honestly, I didn't watch a lot of short films. I just watched a lot of sitcoms. Because they were like that 20, 23 minutes. For me, The Simpsons was like my influence during when I grew up. Simpsons were a huge influence. So I watched a lot of those, just how tight those 23 minutes were. And that was a short film, essentially. And start looking at that and just how those were built. Kind of work backwards from there. I did notice there was a lot of humor in your movie, in Paper Tigers. (laughs) And I'm not a comedy snob, but it was really interesting. There's a wink in some of it. To me, the whole idea that people are having these death-defying fight sequences and yet they can still have some glib comment underneath in some ways that's why i know it's a movie and not a real fight everybody's funny did you have fun adding those elements when you were writing the script because that felt like it was slightly i don't want to say sitcom influence because it it wasn't as cheeky as sitcoms but it did feel like in the worst and most desperate times somebody was still able to make a joke And maybe that's kind of the way I see the world. And, and just jogging back, you know, when I grew up, I would watch Asian movies and TV and entertainment at home because that was kind of our, our lifeline to, as an immigrant, to kind of like what was happening back in our, our homelands, uh, you know, watching Hong Kong movies, like I said, and watching Asian comedies, but also going out and seeing, you know, Spielberg and Cameron and, and, and Mel Brooks that was out in the theaters. But getting a sense of what comedy is internationally, as well as, to, you know, here domestically in the U.S., and getting a sense and really enjoying all of it. There's certain kind of a wackiness to, to kind of Asian humor and Asian comedy, which is maybe why I also appreciate the Simpsons type of humor. And it is out there. The best Simpsons episodes always felt like a little grounded when Homer wasn't this crazy oaf, but he was an oaf who loved his kids or, you know, did stuff, loved his wife. That always kind of like brought it home. For me, those are the episodes that I appreciated. So yeah, I think that's maybe what you're picking up on. Yeah, I think we can have fun with it. This is pretty crazy. I mean, am I right? Look around here. Are we all talking about death matches here? Like there's something absurd about it. And yet it is real to these characters and it is real. So you can have quite a bit of leeway in having you know fun around that, but also not taking away from what's going on with the characters in that moment. Were these episodes of Simpsons translated or were you watching them in English? I was born in the States, so I grew up watching okay. Yeah, The Simpsons. But again, the Asian stuff I would see on VHS tape. We'd rent it from these Chinatown mom-and-pop video stores. This is, again, before YouTube. You could easily access all that now. But at that time, it was just like coming in in short installments, coming out. The latest TV show, over there, they're serials. They're basically like what you would call a limited miniseries now. But they were doing that back then. There was like 40-hour program, and the story ends. So they had all that stuff that we would just binge on VHS. And while you did grow up here... You speak multiple languages, am I right about that? Yeah, so I grew up speaking Vietnamese with my family and watching you know, a lot of those programs was in Vietnamese or, or dubbed somehow. I grew up uh, kind of in a multilingual 
household, uh, essentially. And then I picked up some additional like Chinese in, in university. And, but yeah, so I, it's just kind of also understanding, you know, structurally like jokes in different languages, even just learning that little thing or swear words in different languages kind of gives you a different sense of how people's brains form form those things. Yeah, I mean, I would think it would give you an advantage. I can tell you this, I have a hard time translating humor in other countries and they're also English speaking countries. When I was in Canada doing a joke, I had a joke about they're selling bookmarks for $1.25. What's wrong with that? If you use a dollar for a bookmark, you save a quarter right there. And <laughs> not one laugh. And the reason is they don't have a dollar bill in Canada. Yep. The first yep. thing they have is a $2 bill. Yep. So they just looked at me like it was yeah. the oddest thing in the world. Yeah. And I was like, seriously? And somebody afterwards kind of cleared it up for me. And I was like, oh, interesting. That disconnect was strong enough for that to be completely null and void. Yeah. I um, mean, Pat, that's a, an incredibly culturally insensitive joke that you made for Canadians. They That was terrible <laughs> that you would say I such did. a thing and to them. <laughs> I started this podcast as a way to apologize to Canada. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It took me several episodes to get to this moment. Oh, uh, yeah, here we, like can, here we are. Here we are. I can man up now. Yeah, great. No, I wondered, though, if the multilingual situation, especially because I read that you were editing action films in China and, or somewhere else. Is it Cho Lan? Is that the big action? I cut like this big action movie in Vietnam. I uh, went back to Vietnam for uh, for a couple of projects and then I did like the slapstick comedy and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I got a sense of all the genre sweeps out there and how, how those are done. But exactly, even just watching it and like, why is that joke really funny in Vietnamese? But if I tell someone about it in English, what it is, it it's not, it doesn't land, right? It's different. And there's, uh, those are just kind of things that I kind of noticed. And it's so interesting, linguistic things, puns. That's a whole art and art of the joke in itself to kind of recognize those things. So have you considered directing overseas? Yeah, I'm definitely open to it. I think if I had my crystal ball, I think we're going to reach a little bit more of an international sense of storytelling and entertainment. I mean, even just music-wise, you're seeing BTS. This is the basically the Korean wave. 50 years ago was the British invasion, but you know, you have a Korean wave of music and entertainment. And I think that's going to be opening the doors in terms of how we, he, even here in, in the States, kind of like see where entertainment is centered or, or is created from. So I certainly see storytelling and movies and stories uh, being done from differently, different countries, but being received elsewhere happening more and more often cultures are creating ties with each other and, and crossing borders in a much more powerful way than it was before, for sure. I mean, this whole like this whole conversation around the Oscars and what makes a foreign film and what makes a U.S. film like now it's like you can tell like those things are so out of fashion and don't make sense anymore in this day and age. Yeah, I wouldn't think it's strange. There's so many times that a foreign film wins and you think that's really the best picture. That movie really deserves not to be in this sort of side category. Mm -hmm. It's like many things that are problematic in terms of systematically old school, that they started from something that was really rather innocent, I imagine, and have sort of become a subversively standard. Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite, they were asking, this is before he won the Oscar, but they were asking him about what he thought about being nominated for the Oscars. And he's like, well, it is Oscars is still a regional awards, <laughs> a regional awards for a country that's basically a population less than other countries. So it was pretty funny that he framed it in those words. <laughs> Right before you came on today, we were talking about not just the sound effects, but I thought on radio or in an audio map, 
that you could actually have a kung fu fight because you and I could be making sounds and grunts and so forth. So I don't know if you want to have a throwdown here, if you want to describe some kind of <laughs> roundhouse or punch or whatever, and then I can make the, you can beat me up is what I'm saying, and I will make the appropriate sounds. Okay, tell me how this goes. I'm happy to, I beat you up over radio. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well here's, here's what made me think it would be fun. In the old days, People like Charlie McCarthy would do ventriloquism on the radio, and mm -hmm. it's ridiculous. Of course you can't see the guy moving <laughs> his lips, whatever. But he came a huge star from it. And then there was a guy named Dunninger who did magic on the radio. It's like, what is the point? <laughs> so I thought maybe you and I could advance kung fu fighting oh, yeah. on podcasting. We might as well break ground. Okay, here's the pitch. Two ninjas fighting each other. Are ninjas always silent? Yes. There's a street mime. Yes, a street mime. <laughs> and they're fighting over the money in the hat from the street mime. <laughs> Until they tip the hat and we hear the coins jangle all over the over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Scene. We're geniuses. They were the forerunners of all Kung Fu podcasting. Yes, yes. Royalties, please, for all of us. I will say that as a kid, I did grow up watching Bruce Lee movies, and I just couldn't get over the elegance. This guy was insane as an athlete, as a oh, yeah. ambassador, and he could wipe everybody out in town, and, and he really did pave the way for Asian stars in film and television, I guess, with Green Hornet and some of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if, even just looking back, I mean, his, he looms so large uh, in terms of his influence, but looking back on the time that he landed and, and created his space in, in film and TV, it was just like he busted down a lot of doors to make that happen, and it's pretty incredible. I mean, we stand on his shoulders basically moving forward, but, you know, going back to like we are saying, you were asking about the Asian-Americans things, you know, he's kind of been our only role model for Asian Americans in, in film and TV. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword in that sense because I think there was like a survey that came out maybe most recently and they were asking Americans, name prominent Asian Americans anywhere, science, entertainment, whatever. And they named like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and that was it. <laughs> so I was like, so we have a lot of work to do in other words, but in other words, he's a huge hero, huge influence. The other side of the coin is we can do a lot more and, and certainly carry the ball forward from what he built. Well, he was more than a martial artist as Absolutely. well, though. He, he, I read his book, Be Water. Is that what it was? Mm -hmm. Be Water, my friend? Mm -hmm. And that title encompasses something that I think about frequently, especially when it comes to content creation. Because the concept is that you're formless and you're shapeless, that the idea is water, when you pour it into a cup, becomes the cup. When you pour it into a bottle, it takes the shape of the bottle. When you pour it into a teapot it becomes a teapot so while that is scientifically true it is also true of content because people have ideas and they go oh i've been thinking about this oh i have this well if you don't make it into something if you don't put it in to a screenplay form if you don't put it into a novel form if you don't put it into on a bumper sticker it will become the thing that you envision and i think that's really important for people who create content is you can't just go around with a head of ideas. Mm -hmm. You actually have to say, I'm writing a movie or I'm writing a book or I'm creating a song. You have to kind of 
pick that form in order to have you take the shape that you want. The whole B water and his whole kind of influence is definitely based on this Taoism of this yin yang. And that's how I kind of think about all these things. You know, some things are good and some things are bad. It's all kind of a double-edged sword, a lot of things. And kind of going back to editing and, and you mentioned whether this was an advantage, but in a lot of ways it can also be that trap or temptation of almost knowing too much in a mm-hmm. sense. Like you go on set and you say, that's what I want and I got it. But then what does that leave room for discovery or surprises or anything that the actors could bring to the table? And so you also want to allow for that and be water, like you say, and allow and not just say, we're done, moving on, and be that efficient, like, I got it in the can, but what does the actor have? What do they bring to the table? What little spark can they bring that suddenly the other actors kind of like pile in on and and it becomes something more because you want it to be something more than what you have. So that's, that's one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum is... Exactly like you're saying, kind of like better to have something in the form of something, maybe not to torture this analogy even more, but you know, it's it's better to have, you know, water in your idea, however crappy looking a bottle it is, is better to have that than as just vapor. That's not anything. Put it into something, like do it. Yeah. That's what separates the crazy ones. (laughs) Another thing I do remember, Bruce Lee, talking about a goal is not always meant to be reached. Yes. It often serves as something to aim at. Yeah. And you have to have it. You have to have a target sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think about that a lot because, you know, you're going back to thinking about next projects and what's what's next. And that's always the question because I think about not resting on your laurels and like you're saying, kind of like what not having a goal because it's also not about arriving. It's about the process. If you fall in love with the doing, like there's going to be flops. Like I'll make some flops. It'll happen. And so you have to be really fair about yourself. And it's not about you and just about the process. And if you dedicate yourself to that, there's some that work, there's some that don't. And it'll just you know come out in the wash, hopefully. But that's the whole idea that you can actually follow a craft and, and follow the process and not be so enamored with those highs, the great highs. But then that means you also got to take the lows with it as well. And so it's, it's just a way to kind of be a little bit more even keeled in life. I watched your demo reel online somewhere. It was great fun. And one of the things about demo reels is... It's fantastic when you have action in it and you have a ton of action (laughs) Yep. because that's the way you worked. So I guess I would ask you in case there's some fledgling directors or somebody who aspires to be, to do what you're doing, how do you pick the things that you put on your demo reel? In, In your case, you were both the director and the editor. So I immediately said, oh, this guy made this thing. This is all him. But sometimes somebody's one thing or the other. So for a directing reel, what would you suggest people are trying to capture? Yeah, that's a hard thing to do uh, because, uh, you know, I'm not the greatest directing reel editor person. You know, it's like I think in terms of stories. So reels are kind of like maybe a mini story in that sense. But reels are essentially just being able to get what kind of conveys your personality, if that makes sense. And whether it means in a cool shot and maybe it's not a cool shot, it eventually kind of conveys your personality. And how do you get that across to to the viewer through the scenes that you shot or the scenes that you've done. I think that's kind of more about the that armature, that, that takeaway that you want to give to a person seeing it as opposed to kind of wowing them with, you know, all these crane shots and, and everything else that you can kind of throw at it. And I don't know, you know, sometimes a reel is kind of a, it depends on who's watching it and what's their purpose in trying to suss out, you know, what they need. Is this person trying to be hired for a DP or hired for as an editor? Editing reels have always been a head scratcher for me like I don't like how do you 
demonstrate editing in a reel. Like it's, it's just never like there's so there's a bit of conundrums around that. So maybe it's just kind of giving a taster. So I, I struggle to kind of give a good answer on this because it, it is sometimes maybe just kind of a taster's taster's menu, and then hopefully people can watch your actual work in full and what you're intending to do. Well, maybe for an editing reel, you just take a big chunk of the French Connection and drop it in there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So they know what editing is. Yep. You know. Yep. Is there any transferable information in your creativity from your storytelling, your directing to other things in your life, to music, to art, to things that are, let's say, not done on film? I mean, how yeah. you look at things as a problem solver? Because I always think of directors as people that make a lot of decisions. Yes. Yeah. Delegate. There's little personality stuff as well that you start to learn. And it's also trying to understand people's perspective. For example, if you have a DP or production designer, they have very strong ideas, but they're coming at, you know, they're reading the same script as you and they have a different idea about it. And that's, that's always a point where you have to kind of stop and listen and see what they're bringing to the table or what that, how this could possibly augment the film that you're trying to make because we're all hopefully trying to do good work. And maybe that's the thing that transfers into life because I, I like to hear people out. I want to hear what they're thinking, how they see the world, why they're seeing this situation this, this way. So it makes me curious. And also kind of maybe you have a really good BS meteor. <laughs> you start to suss out very simply. You see lies in acting. You see if it's not the actor is not quite nailing it because there's some barrier that it's not true for them yet. Not that they're lying, lying, it's all lies, but you know, it's not true for them yet. And you start to sense that, that kind of uneasiness and you kind of are their therapist at that point. But that little thing is you start to go in the world and see when people are just trying to put one over you and try to try to get one by you for sure. I think that definitely, definitely helps. It does feel like there are uh, so many hats a director wears and one of them is leadership. So this is like trying to get a group of people to Antarctica and survive. <laughs> Much less, you know, just trying to get them to the other side of the street and survive, really. It's like, <laughs> you know, I was thinking in terms of Antarctica, yeah, it's like it's herding kittens at a certain point. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so the other thing, you mentioned uh, DPs, and they're such a valuable thing that the common movie watcher isn't necessarily aware of what they're doing to make it look so beautiful. I remember seeing a documentary some years ago called The Visions of Light. And I don't know if you've seen that movie or not, but it's a salute to the art of cinematography. And it's done artfully to music. And it really opened my eyes to what goes into lighting a film and setting a tone and not just deciding what time of day, but what emotion is happening and all of that. And it becomes something that directors become attached to DPs. They find somebody who can communicate all of that. Essentially, there was a uh, there was a book from 1949 called Paint with Light. And it was really about a symphony of light, how to make visual music, essentially. You've now done your first one. Is this the kind of thing where you're making relationships that your members of your crew will continue on with you if you're able to move to another project? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's terms of just trying to understand, you know, obviously the right fit for the right movie. Thankfully, for up to now, I've been working with my cinematographer, uh, Sean Mayor, 
for many, many projects, as long, along with my action director, like I mentioned, Ken Kidwell, we've worked on a lot of projects together. And so, yeah, there is kind of an easy understanding, communication of what we're trying to do. And it's just so, it's so much better when you're on the same page and trying to do something. And again, even though they, we have different ideas, we just know it's coming from a place of, you know, wanting to make it better. So you, there's a trust involved with that, as opposed to if you kind of have someone new or maybe completely of a different philosophy or, or outlook on filmmaking, you know, to just not be, we're not making the same movie at this point. And I've seen that side happen, uh, not on our, on my films, fortunately, but, you know, I've seen it happen with friends. And so you can kind of see that disconnect happen quite easily. Film suffers for it because it, it the film needs all that TLC from all those hands on deck to make it really shine. The DP is that one touch that you can't really quite put a finger on because it's such it's exactly what people see like that's their people's first entry into the film even the trailer or whatever the first opening shot before any acting is done before any word is being spoken the image is the one that immediately comes across to, to the audience so i mean it's so key so each cut even you know it that's the, the new piece of information there's always new pieces of information through that shot that the audience gets so it's so important and again it's just kind of a testament to i guess film as a whole and that's why I love film because it's just you have so many personalities and potentials for creativity and and people kind of bringing their own skills and 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 talents to to the film whereas all respect to say a poet or a novelist you know it's a little bit more one-to-one it's like comes from their brain to the page and that's the thing and that's great that frightens me and I like to have other people be my fodder and be my protection in front of me <laughs> so I can blame. Essentially, I can have other people to blame. Uh, but the beauty of it is that you just have you can just elevate a piece to beyond what I, I want it to be. Like I told you, I love being excited. I love being surprised by what I never thought it could be, but in still in the right way. So I love being surprised by an actor. I love being surprised by a DP once that first shot is up and when, when you start to actually open up the viewfinder and you're seeing it's like, wow, that's what you're going for. There you go. It's a birthing process. You're very mm-hmm. surprised by how beautiful the baby is when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever been confident of a joke, but it went over even better than you thought? Oh, yeah. In fact, I would say in plays I wrote, I wrote things that weren't jokes that were funnier right? than the jokes. <laughs> because the actor raised an eyebrow or something happened. I think you really need to be fluid and you really need to be flexible. Yep. When you're creating original content, you can't determine what an audience, sometimes they'll groan and think you think is perfectly regular, normal, and they'll go, ah, and you'll like go, what? Mm -hmm. But somehow the entire community has decided to give you that sound and there's a reason for it and you don't even always know why. It's definitely puzzling and it's a treat when when you get a bonus out of it. And uh, you know, it's one thing where you kind of go, oh, did something happen behind my back I didn't even know about here? So it is a mystery, and it's, I think, one of the things that keeps us all intrigued. Yeah. As a father of your new film, you have birthed a beautiful baby, and it will entertain families for years to come. Anybody who's looking for some really fun action comedy, uh, Paper Tigers is available and will probably then be on some streaming location. I, I, I know that it's something they'll enjoy, so I would encourage them to see it. And Bao, I thank you very much for sharing your creative voice with our community today. Thanks again for having me. It was great chatting with you. La, 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 la. 
Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call to create.